Hey guys, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. That's right, you're here on Chase Travis Live Show on Creative Live, and I am very excited you're here. Happy to be in your ears, and today's show is a barnstormer. And I don't think I've ever used that word before. <laughs> Not just because it's a complicated, strange word, but because I truly mean it, this episode is a powerful one with none other than Melissa Arnaud-Reed. Now, if you do not know that name, it's because you are not in the outdoor action sports or mountain climbing communities. And if you are in those communities, you know that she is one of the most badass mountain climbers of all time. As in, she, as a woman in the Western world, has more Everest summits than anyone else. And she's the first American woman to summit Everest and return to base without supplemental oxygen. An absolutely insane feat. And she's a certifiable badass in so many ways. And there's obvious connections between climbing mountains and doing hard shit in life. And Melissa is so wise around concept like fear, like leadership, like risk, and even so far as life and death. That is the reality that she has had in the mountains is you're around abundance and joy and doing things that have literally never been done before. And also it's a place where the risks are so high that people lose their lives. It's just an amazing episode. We traverse a ton of ground. She has wisdom in all these areas. She's an amazing public speaker, author, um, but her ability to focus on chasing the things you want, the things that no one thought was possible, literally no one in the world thought was possible at some point, to best those things and then to be able to come back, reflect on how you did it, why, and share those tales. Also through story. It's just, it's a beautiful episode and she's so well-spoken. Uh, and we have the benefit of being friends. I have had the, the good fortune of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest peak of Africa, under Melissa's guide. And she's just an incredible leader and you are going to get a ton out of this show. So I'm going to get the heck out of the way. But before I do, a quick word from Creative Live. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own. And on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so psyched to be here Thank with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. This is a long time in the making. It was like maybe even 
the year? Is it is. I, I had to be with you out in the mountains and dirty and climbing to the high altitude summit of something before yes. I'd agree to come. It's so. true. It's true. <laughs> um, so for the folks at home, I think uh, you, you're familiar with the show, but there's a, a long sort of history and trajectory for the show around people who have done amazing things in a lot of different disciplines, um, but also around uh, a theme of people who've made the living and the life doing what they love. Mm -hmm. And I've wanted to have you on the show for many reasons, one of which is obviously that climbing a mountain is this classic metaphor for Such life. Classic, yeah. uh, classic metaphor for life. But how, how in the hell, we're just going to orient, yeah. orient the world, how in the hell did you decide to walk uphill slowly? Mm -hmm. That's my true, proper profession <laughs> is I living. walk uphill slowly. Right. How did you decide? I mean, and yeah. it's not an exaggeration to say you've mm -hmm. dealt with life and death on, mm -hmm. a, on a regular basis in that profession. We'll get to that a little bit later. But there's folks at home who, want, who, who believe that their dream is completely unattainable and people would laugh at them, but you literally walk uphill slowly for a living. Yeah. So A, how did you craft that? that dream and then what are some of the things you did to get there? Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Southern Colorado with two authentically hippie parents, which I mean authentically hippie. And uh, their biggest dreams for me and my sister were that we were going to live out of the back of our trucks and ski all year. That was like their highest aspiration and hope for us. Wow. So I really had that influence from an early age, mm -hmm. but I, like all teenagers, fully rebelled and I went to college in Iowa and got a you were clean. business <laughs> degree. Yeah, I also got an apartment and a stable and job a working for Procter & Gamble. And yeah, and I just totally rebelled against my parents. I was like, this is not the life I want. I don't want to be outside and be dirty and all of this. And at some point, as I was sort of living this life that I had imagined somehow was different from my parents and I don't, I'm not going to be like them, I came back to visit them in the mountains and I saw the mountains for the first time. And I had truly never seen them because I was surrounded by them so much growing up. Yeah. And I had that inspiration that I think so many people have felt when they see nature in a first time sort of way, whatever that power that it holds uh -huh. is. And I immediately knew that I needed to get into the mountains and learn as much as I could. And for the first time in my life, I found something that was athletic but non-competitive. It was this like collaborative activity. And I'm just, I'm like the anti-competitive person. If you try to race me, I'll just stop and watch you and just be like, you have fun with that. <laughs> like I'm just not competitive, you know? So, but I'm super driven internally with myself and being better. But I like working together with somebody towards a shared goal. Yeah. And so climbing offered me that. And I started learning how to climb. I learned how to rock climb first and ice climb. And then eventually got into glacial mountaineering. And um, I live now in Washington state. I started out working as a guide on Mount Rainier. Amazing is the most glaciated peak in the lower 48 and a great place to learn all of the skills for climbing bigger mountains. And I grew up rather poor and I didn't think I was ever going to have the opportunity to travel in the world and get places. And I realized suddenly, you know, mountains are this passport to seeing cultures and places and people that I don't know anything about. Yeah. And I fully went in, all in. And I definitely lived in the back of my truck. I definitely like <laughs> counted pennies to buy ramen or like Totino's pizza from Super Walmart. And my dad was so <laughs> proud of me. And <laughs> like all of his dreams Those were fulfilled. Shining, shining moments. Shining yeah. moments, yeah. So that's like the path that ultimately led me to what now I think is easy, is a high accolade career where people are like, wow, you're so amazing. And I'm like, if you knew <laughs> the number of days that I have chosen to sleep in the back of my truck that I've the hotel rooms I've cleaned to you know make minimum wage job that I could work in the early hours and then still be able to go and climb and do the things I wanted to do 
it's not such an obvious path. Yeah. And um, it's definitely been a passion path though, for sure. And that's what's kept me on this course. Well, it's such an extraordinary to, I mean, to have, you mentioned accolades, to have achieved the things, the mm -hmm. world records, the firsts, the most, the, all, all the of those summits, things. The summits, if you will. Yeah, the summits. <laughs> yeah. The, the high the, points. The high points. Yeah. Bum, bum, we just have just, cliches an, abound in right, my career. It's, it's like you have to try not to hit them if yeah, you want. I'm, I'm trying and yeah. I'm losing right now. Uh, but a little bit to, to dig into the why. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you went back and you saw the mountains for the first time. Yeah. The folks at home are going like, my goal is totally unreasonable. Yeah. And I think a big disconnect is some people think that they start something and they have to see all the way to the finish line mm -hmm. in order to start it. Or is it, was it for you, was it a matter of just seeing like, oh, I want to pursue this because I'm having fun? Like which of those two or some combination was it for you? You speak from a place of knowing in just the way that you phrase that question because I know you know what the catch of actually accomplishing big things is. And the catch is that you need to have this long-term focus with a really short-term goal set and you have to have equal parts conviction in pursuing what it is and willingness to totally let it go at any moment. And that is like an impossible, I mean, just yeah. think about like we've all been in a relationship. You can't be very successfully in a relationship where you're like all in, but also totally willing to like say goodbye and be cool with either thing. And that's what chasing big things requires. There's a like mental hiccup somewhere that has to happen there where you realize that the small step that you're taking right now, again, pardon the cliches, because it's gonna, it's, this is raw, this is, no, we're gonna, it's gonna be cliche written, I'm sorry. Um, but we are going, you know, you take this one step, you climb this one pitch, this one peak, this one small summit that gets you ultimately to being able to climb the big mountains. And you know you're always kind of doing it for this greater goal, but you still are putting in the toil of that sort of. It's so literal in climbing mountains. It is, and it's so, I mean, here's the thing I think about climbing, that I, the biggest thing that it's given me. It's given me the ability to be totally a control freak in general life that has completely out of control, and I can't control the things that are happening, so it's like, welcome to being humbled just minute by minute, and just having to accept it, and then like joyfully choose to be humbled. Yeah. Because it's not like, we don't really joyfully choose to be humbled. <laughs> like it's not something yeah, we like not pursue. Yeah, it's not something we're running around volunteering for. No, I mean right. like people that do, I admire them, and I'm yeah. also confused by them, because yeah. it's like real hard to be in that position. But you know, you're pursuing that, and, and you know you're working towards something so big, and when people are like, oh, I have this big goal, I'll never, or I, people say to me all the time, oh, I would never be able to go climb Everest. And I'm like, you know what? in this temperature controlled room where I just had like a delicious lunch, neither would I. Cause yeah. you don't go from here to there and yeah. you're in your mind, you're going from here to there and there's yeah. a lot that happens in between. So did, I know with myself and uh, a handful of other folks that have decided to pursue things that might have been perceived by most as irrational. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, good luck with that. You're gonna make hundreds. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do you, like how did people respond when you said that, you know, I wanna, you know, leave this stable job to go, you know, walk uphill slowly. How, how does that, how, what did people say? And did you feel distracted or discouraged or empowered or both or neither? How, how the frick did you f figure out how to make money walking yeah. uphill slowly? I would say I didn't really <laughs> figure it out. Um, it like sort of figured itself out in okay. some way. And I do think that like when you're in, um, you know, I had no backup plan. I grew up economically, you know, rather in the tight confines of an authentically hippie family um, where we just didn't have extras. My sister and I didn't have the support system. Once we were adults, we were like fully on our own. 
And so I knew I could survive financially, and I knew that that might mean different things. I wouldn't necessarily be thriving, but I would be okay. So I could put that aside as a worry. And then the other side of it is that, you know, for every naysayer that you can find that says, like, this isn't going to work, I accidentally found myself intentionally surrounding myself but with people who thought what I was doing was so cool. Yeah. And for every one of the naysayers, you can find somebody that thinks, oh, you're so badass with yeah. what you're doing. And like living in the back of your truck is just not that sexy. But when I guarantee when I like introduce that, people are like, oh, I wish I could just, you know, I mean, this was like pre hashtag van life and everything. Right. Like there was no hashtag anything. And so it wasn't <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sleeping in like Motel 8 parking lots because generally you wouldn't get harassed for like sleeping in the back of your truck there. And I had like homemade curtains. So like no one would know it was there. And I almost got abducted once from the back of my truck. And like there's a lot of uns sexy moments in it but you could always find somebody to be like yeah like fist bump you're, you're core you know I'm like yep. Ugh, if this is core like <laughs> do you really want to see under the covers of core yeah because then there's this whole other side of um you know which I think we're much more exposed to in our current lives where we have exposure to glossy beautiful highlight reels of everybody's life through all of the social media aspects and things we're exposed to where you do just see the sexy side of it. And yeah. it is like people are really um, curating that mm. existence to be this like yeah. thing. And I actually think the most beautiful parts of it were the non-curated parts, the parts that just happened. I mean, I can tell you some of my happiest moments in my life have similarities, whether they were achieving a big goal that I'd worked really hard towards in this you know, latter part of my more successful, externally validated successful life. I felt as equally as elated and happy as I felt when I was 14 years old, waking up at 4 a.m., riding my bike to a hotel where I opened the Continental Breakfast, cleaning hotel rooms, and then closing a health club gym at night to make money to save to move out of my house and be able to be independent. I feel equally as happy working hard towards a goal. And so that's been like something that's really tied it all together. For Was me. that a, is that a skill that you developed as a young person to cope with the reality of your parents not providing sort of like this on-ramp to mm -hmm. college and as you feel like was there a self-sustenance thing was it yeah, a stubborn thing or was, was it is it scared was it fear or was it joy yeah you know not fear so I will say that I've all of the greatest things in my life I've not pursued out of fear almost everything I've pursued out of fear of losing something or fear of not achieving something has been vapid and ultimately when I get there it's like well yeah. I don't like this this feels gross and I reroute myself um I think it has to do less with like well, equal parts with necessity of what I needed to do and what I knew was required of me yeah. and sort of this like admiration that I had for how hard my parents worked just to get by because yep. they made a choice. They're smart, capable people that could have taken high paying corporate jobs and had a super posh existence, but they wanted to be in the mountains. They wanted yep. to, um, you know, like maybe fly under the radar of the government perhaps or whatever. Um, so there was some necessity maybe of them on that part, but they wanted to be happy. Yeah. And they wanted, and my dad, I remember he did construction when I was a little, very little kid. And he said, I do this because I can go work for a month and I can spend two months watching my daughters grow up. And if I went and punched a clock every day, I'd miss all your whole lives. And though I didn't know it, I was gaining this admiration for hard work. And I see that in myself and my sister. And it's something that just was obvious, like you have to do it. Yeah. And it, it comes actually at a cost. It comes with this like very conscientious resentment that I have towards um, people that, you know, were born into different circumstances and, and the 
you know, pardon the categorization because not everybody fits into it neatly, right. but like the trust fund set that yeah. is hashtag van life now and is this super like sexy curated side of living out of the back of your truck because you also know that like at any moment you could go get an apartment. There's a very different reality when you're like, it's all in. Yeah. And I think that that willingness to be all in has been the most important consistent theme in my life. It's that knowledge that once I go all in, it's on me to make this work yeah. or to reroute and, yeah. and take it as it comes. It's like uh, Tony Robbins talks about, you want to take the island, burn the boats. Yeah, like when you, totally. When you, when yeah, you can't. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that metaphor exactly is so for, you know, and maybe we don't have to talk about this right now, but for me to be successful with the biggest sort of physical achievement of my life of trying to climb Everest without using supplemental oxygen. Yeah. Somebody had told me early on, you cannot have oxygen with you because you will use it. And I was like, you don't know how much willpower I have. I can too have it with me. Uh-huh. And it took me eight years. And every single one of those previous tries, I had the option of oxygen and I always used it. And when I was successful, it was absolutely 100% not an option. And that was true. It was like, there are some areas where you, you gotta burn the boats. That's incredible. So there's a lot of different ways I want to go right now. I want to go straight to that because you, you went Sorry, there. Sorry. No, no, it's, a, it's incredible. <laughs> and I've had, like, uh, if, so folks are both listening to this as a podcast and some folks are watching it because we, we capture the video. Um, the woman that you see before you hear or that you're listening to. I not line up with what you think I look my, like. <laughs> my, like, is a certifiable, like, bone-crushing badass and uh, I've had the good privilege of climbing uh, Mount Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. um, with you. I, now, under your guidance, how about that? With you? Behind I, you? <laughs> mm, I don't know how much guidance you needed. I really felt like you were a co-climber with oh, me. Oh, God. Um, but the reality... <laughs> and trust me, I would tell you if you weren't. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not being nice. I'm not known for my niceness. I, so, I, like. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't see you pull many punches. <laughs> um, but the, the sheer goal so if you're a mountain climber mm-hmm. the goal of climbing mm-hmm. the biggest most dangerous peak or one of the most dangerous mm-hmm. peaks in the world is like an extraordinary goal mm-hmm. and a to have set that goal like what what made you want to go as big as you absolutely possibly because there's a lot of people who climb mountains yeah. myself included I'm really happy just to climb these volcanoes that yeah. are well there's up some in the great northwest. yeah there's some beautiful things but yeah, I have yeah. zero Mm-hmm. desire. In fact, I've had opportunities to go to Everest and turn them down. But what makes you say yes to that most massive goal that you can say mm-hmm. yes to in that industry? First question. Second question is go back over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think it's really hard for people to understand. And at least half of the people who are watching this or listening to this probably had a moment of like eye rolling like Everest you know because we hear about it in a kind of gross way a lot of times in the media where oh you know any rich person can just go pay their way there and I think that that is maybe true I don't actually fully subscribe to that having been a person who's been a lot of my life there I would argue with that but it's also who are we in our infinite wisdom to look at other people's motivations and say that they're okay or not. And I think one of the beautiful parts about climbing big mountains and big mountains in the world in general is the world belongs to us all, regardless of what your motivation is and regardless if I agree with it or not. So if you are just like a super wealthy oil executive and you've never climbed a single mountain in your life and you want to go to the summit of Everest, 
by being a human on this planet and also by like a, whatever economics are afforded to you and a yeah. bunch of other things that have yeah. to go into that, you can do it. Yeah. And who am I to like shame you for your reasons? Yeah. But for me, you're it was so a, good at You're so good at framing this. <laughs> like, like the oil, I, I see it. Yeah, you, see, you know the yeah. person, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, you know this person yeah, that we're all like yeah. hate and we're like, oh, isn't Everest just filled with people that are caring? Aren't Sherpas just carrying everybody on their backs to the summit? And it's like, I mean, okay. So if you've listened to, to this point, I hope sure. you think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I've spent about 10 years of my life on Everest. And if I was reasonably intelligent, like there has to be something more there, right? Yeah. Like I can't just, and also like the ego accolades you get from climbing Everest are just not sustainable enough to get you through like the negativity of sure. if that was really what it was like. For me, going there the first time, it was about a job. You know, I work yeah. as a professional mountain guide and I had the opportunity to go and guide a client in one of the most weird circumstances that I ever had been put in. My client was a, a climber who had summited all of the seven summits already, including Mount Everest, and he wanted to go back and climb again. And he wanted me to be an assistant guide, partly because of my guiding skills that he'd seen on other peaks, partly because of my medical knowledge and I was like, no, I can't do that. And he said, well, what would it take? And I said, I'd have to work with another guide. And he said, great, then I'll hire two guides. And he was in the position that he could do that. Okay. He also had like some deeply philanthropic reasons for wanting to be there, yeah. knowing that Everest was this incredible billboard that catches all of our attention, whether we're climbers or not. Yeah. And he wanted to capitalize on that from a business side of things and raise funds and awareness for the um, global AIDS crisis and Product Red and working with Bono and Bobby of course, Shriver. Of course. So I was suddenly in a position where I'm not being the philanthropic one, I'm just a mountain guide. Like yeah. I'm here to make sure that the knots are safe and to also learn and have this opportunity to climb the biggest mountain in the world. Yeah. And that first time I never, I didn't go thinking this is where my life is gonna be, this is gonna define me. But as soon as I was there, I realized that the people in the area surrounding Everest, all of the different various tribes, one of which is the Sherpa tribe. It's a tribe of people. It's also, we refer to Sherpa as a job often, and um, that's a little bit incorrect. It's Porter is the job. Sherpa yeah. is a last name and a tribe of people. But the Sherpa people shared something that I saw as very familiar mm. from watching my parents work hard growing up, you know? Yeah. And something I'd seen in myself, and it was this like work ethic and just drive and ability to be okay in nature and not try to like conform nature to you, but to like, work with nature. So this is what we have today, right? So yeah, okay. right. exactly, yeah. And then this is what we're gonna do with it and, and figuring it out. And I knew that I wanted to go back to that place. So I was successful my first time guiding and climbing on Everest. I summited, it was not <laughs> uncomplicated. There was a lot of things going on that year. The Olympic torch was being carried to the summit from the Chinese side by a group of climbers from Beijing and they put all these restrictions on the Nepal side and said, you can't climb. We were constantly told no, no, no. And then all of a sudden one day we were like, yes, but we didn't have enough time left in the season to climatize and everybody was climbing on the same day and it was just like crazy. Yeah. And I left with more questions than answers. And that's sort of my barometer of how I put myself into experiences is curiosity is my biggest driver. And so if I can learn something, yeah. I'm gonna go and learn something. And I have to tell you the dead truth of Everest for me Every year that I went back and had a different experience, whether it involved the summit or not, I found myself with either more curiosity or a satiated curiosity, but a whole new type of curiosity. Yeah. And that's what kept bringing me back, is just trying to see there's all these questions I want answers to, and I believe I can get them, but I must be persistent. Yeah, is that, is that well, it's probably reasonably easy to translate that into a metaphor, but what is a, 
I'm gonna let you do the work here. So okay. what is the metaphor that that provides for others? Like you're doing it on a mountain, mm -hmm. you continue to go back, everything you do, you learn a little bit more. Yeah. And some provide answers and closure, other provide more questions. Is there some sort of a quest thing or like what's... Yeah, you... it's interesting because I don't know if this is specific enough um, in terms of a metaphor to understand, but you can tell me. Yeah. I think it's like all of us humans have felt we were starting to excel and maybe not to the point of being a true expert. We've probably all felt that we were an expert at something at some point, whatever that thing is. Yeah. If everybody who became an expert at any given thing turned around and walked away from it at that point, nothing would evolve. Nothing would become bigger and better. You know, and it's like, I think about like, um, if you are, you're good at, um, like sales or something and you're figuring out like, oh, you know, we're doing this credit card sales. Okay. So yeah, we have a credit card company. We're like making great credit cards and credit card processing and everything's great. Let's do more credit card processing. But the pivot point is where you get curious and you say, what if, could we do something better? Yeah. Is there a better way to do this? Like, or a different way? And it's that reinventing the wheel. It's the two genres of people that say like, why reinvent the wheel? And it's like, why not reinvent the wheel? <laughs> like, right. Make a bigger one or a yeah, better one. Or yeah, a like, is, one or... is the wheel really the best thing here? And yeah. I think that that's the point of um, where innovation actually occurs. And I think innovation can occur creatively. It can occur uh, physically. It can occur personally on like the little micro evolutions that we are all going through as humans right now while we're all doing whatever we're doing. And then it can occur like on this big macro level. And so for me, that was a huge part of what it all yeah. is. It's just like, evolutionary thing of just this constant curiosity yeah. of is, what? Well, to me, I think there's something that is also embedded in there, which is the idea of mastery. And you, mm -hmm. you said it really eloquently with like, everybody's an expert at something. Mm -hmm. And did you figure out that you were an expert at climbing? I and really am super duper mediocre at climbing, just to make that like totally clear. I'm still like well in the throes of trying to work towards expert, but I'm like deeply in it for sure. I have so much I can learn and I'm constantly, that's the best but thing could, ever. But that's a humility that you as a human being. But it's being, also the truth. Listen, oh my God, we're going to fight about yeah. this. <laughs> I've, I've seen you, you in guys, action. You guys, we're having our third fight. You guys <laughs> are witnessing it. I can't tell you what the first two were. We're, we're... <laughs> But I think there's something beautiful in there that, that everyone's an expert, and if you actually can trust your instincts and you know do the thing that you're supposed to be doing or that you're an expert in, like mm -hmm. there's this beautiful thing that if you follow your curiosity yeah. or follow your interests or your mm -hmm. effort, then that's a, a great way to sort of plug into this. Yeah. When you feel like you're doing something that you're supposed to be doing, there's this tractor beam, this pull, mm -hmm. rather than this like hard trudge. Again, I can't keep losing the climbing metaphor. I know because it's hard. I know it's impossible. But what about if, did you, like the part where you have to figure out how to make yes. money? To me, Well, okay, so fast. two things okay, go for about it. that. So the first thing is finding your passion. And mm -hmm. I actually think that like probably more people in the world are struggling to find their passion than to find a way to make money. Um, and then you have the whole problem of making your passion make money. Like yeah. that's a whole secondary conundrum. But yep. I think first is knowing your passion and finding that thing that pulls you. And I think that we constantly are living in a world, especially now, and it's complicated every day by distracting ourselves from true feelings. Yeah. And we distract ourselves with so many things and so many stimulations that some are greatly enrich our lives, but some are also just preventing us from truly ever feeling something. Yeah. And so we tend now, just for, let, me, let me take a moment and psychoanalyze the entire world. We all tend to, <laughs> glom quite easily onto other people's passions yeah. when we see something that's beautiful or especially when we see something that's very validated by 
the public. Culture, yeah. Yep. And a rock we said, star. Yeah, we're like, I want to be a rock star. And it's right. like, I can stand on stage and sing. I can sing. Totally. Yeah, look at all the praise here. Yeah, she is exactly. Yeah. And in my micro little cause, I'm like climbing, especially climbing Everest is, um, it's an interesting thing because people are like, I want to do that for the, that accolade. Well, if that's your only reason for doing it, I can tell you it's going to be 10 times as hard as if you do it because you love it, which is true of everything, right? Yep. If you uh. find that thing. So how do you find that thing that is your passion? People are always asking me like, oh, you know, how did you know? And my only answer I can give you is if you're doing something and you're like, is this my passion, especially for young people, because they're the ones that want that sort of shortcutted like yes, no. Uh-huh. If you're asking that question, it is not your passion. Because you, when you're in your passion, it's almost like you don't, you're so blinded by just executing it that you yeah. don't even have time to pause and say like, is this my thing? And you know what? You could have about a billion things in your life. Like that's the gift of being human, right? right. Like I don't know that cl- being like a climber, a high altitude climber is totally going to be what defines me. Yeah. Like in 20 more years, maybe I'm, nobody's going to even mention this because like I found my deeper, my real passion or whatever, right. you know, but this is something that I've pursued fearlessly and completely and I've committed all the way into. And so then how do you sort of morph that into something where you can make a living out of it? And I think that that is really, really, really hard. Yes. And I referenced it a little bit earlier. I think you have to be totally willing to be in survival mode and to know that the- I'm good with survival mode as long as I'm getting that thing. The nourishment that you, your character and your soul receives from doing the thing that means the most to you is so much more calorically dense than real food. <laughs> if you have to like starve yourself to achieve your passion, that's what I think. You know, so I think that like you make sacrifices and those sacrifices don't feel like sacrifices because you are doing this thing. And I, this is, okay, this goes to another cliche metaphor okay. thing. It's like we've all been in a relationship, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like you're in the beginning stages of a relationship where sacrifices just feel like sweet things. Yeah. Where you're like, this isn't a sacrifice. Like, oh, I didn't even want to do my own thing on Sunday. Anyway, I wanted to totally. And you truly feel that. Yep. And so it's holding on to that moment <laughs> forever. And yeah. then suddenly it becomes quite easy to like find, you. it's like it opens up the cleverness part of your brain. And you're like, suddenly quite clever about how to capitalize that and turn it into something. So for me, I, it was a necessity to be able to pay my bills, right? Yep. And I realized quite quickly, okay, I could be a climber and just be a total dirtbag climber and probably, quite honestly, be a way better climber or I can try to spend as much time as I want as I can outside and also climb. And maybe my climbing skill set will not develop as quickly, but I can make a living doing this. Yeah. And I, I really spent a lot of time, especially in my early days when I was like 19 years old and 20 years old, just really studying the people that I thought were cool and figuring out like, what do we have in common and how are you making it work? And could I see that working for me too? And you're just like hijacking other people's blueprint a little bit and yep. then tweaking it so that it became my blueprint. And the thing I've created, nobody does the career I do. You know, it's hard for me to describe what I do. Yeah. And it's such a matrix. And if you were to um, look at my schedule of like how I make it work, it is a hundred balls in the air all the time. I spend, I spend nearly no time doing nothing. You know, I'm yeah. always like hustling or saying yes. Or f- I mean, I just flew here from Texas where I was speaking yesterday and, you know, I'm going then to Colorado to teach at a retreat for next week. And it's just like constant movement and a matrix of all sorts of different things that ultimately come together and make this thing. But it's not 
you know. Oh, <laughs> it's how do you, like, what do you, so this is my whole conundrum, like when you're on a plane, someone's like, oh, what do you do for work? And I'm, 100% of the time, I work at Starbucks. And they're like, oh, nice, like making the coffee. I'm like, I don't even get to make the coffee. I work in like the corporate office. And they're like, hmm. And then they go back to reading their book. And I'm like, this was so much easier of a conversation than this person who says like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I work as a mountain guide. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I work as like a high altitude climbing guide helping clients experience the mountain safely. Oh, like you, you drive the bus around like Mount Rainier? I'm like, okay. So let <laughs> me just tell you, like, I, uh, and I quickly have to go to like, you know, I work on Mount Everest as a professional climbing guide. Oh, to the top? I'm like, well, yes, to the <laughs> top the of middle, Everest. This yeah. is like the conversation, it's a really common conversation I have. And so it's funny because it's like hard for people to understand. And I don't oh, know what sure. to say. I'm like, yeah. I'm a guide, athlete, I'm a speaker, I like sharing my story. I'm a teacher, um, I'm a mentor. I do some philanthropic work. <laughs> like, it's just a matrix. Sometimes I'm like a house cleaner. <laughs> but I think how, but to me, go back to the thing you said earlier about uh, being willing to do whatever it takes. The fact that you, you do just figure out when, mm -hmm. you're, when you're sort of all in or you're committed to the thing or where you're feeling that flow state. I think that's the thing that so many people today in our culture, but just, I say today in our culture, especially because we have that other side of us that's rather disconnected or mm -hmm. that's looking at what everybody else's highlight reel is. Did you feel like you, you were able to go straight there? Or was there any sort of like, did you, did you screw up and get off track? Yeah. And, and if so, like help us see you as human as opposed to Wonder Woman. Yeah, well... It's a very human experience that I am in. It's like constant. I mean, I screw up like all the time, every day, still today, figuring it out. You know, like it, I don't think I've cracked the code, quite honestly. Like, I think I have a code. I do feel quite centered in what I've got going for me now. And I yeah. feel like I have a sustainable balance. But if I showed it to you, it wouldn't look anything like balance to anybody else, probably. It yeah. would look like something crazy and yeah. it doesn't make any sense. So I think that... Um, but relative to what you have been doing in order to get here, yeah. it's balanced, right? Totally. Yeah. There, it's, it's sustainable, I guess, is a better yeah. word than yeah, balance. We were talking I about strive that before, yeah. for balance, but I ultimately want sustainability. I want something that I can keep doing mm -hmm. and that makes sense and is possible. But I, I think one of the biggest hiccups that is really, that I've struggled with, and it's, you know, my highly centered self right now, I would tell you, if you're going to pursue whatever your thing is and to be able to do it, I think one thing you have to do is be willing to abandon what others think of that path. Mm -hmm. To do that, you have to be also willing to give up the accolades of people thinking what you're doing is great. Because you have to give up the good with the bad. You can't just ignore the bad feedback and listen to the glossy stuff. One of my biggest challenges is that I'm a normal, insecure human who cares deeply what people think of me. <laughs> of course, in a really like small, net, little circle of the you know 18 friends that I might have had when I was... 20 and learning this to like now the public audience that knows about me, I care just as much what everybody thinks about me. Yeah. And so that has been such a challenge, I think, to keep your motivations authentic. And so, and I don't know, like this is where I say I don't, I don't have the answer to it, but it's the thing that I constantly, if there's one thing that I am truly messing up, it's that. It's that making sh sure <laughs> that I'm making decisions that are like values-based decisions yeah. and not validation-based decisions. And I think actually in some ways, the more successful you become, the bigger of a trap it is, though it's a trap we all feel no matter 
how much quote unquote success we feel like we're yeah, whatever the measure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just so easy to get mired so deeply into like what other people think of your path. And the truth is, at the end of the day, like you're w- with you. Like, yeah. and if you're not cool with your path, how many it's people a told you you couldn't do it? Life. How many people told you you couldn't do told it? Told me or gave me the vibes that they knew I couldn't do it. Both. Like, <laughs> so many. Yeah. Yeah, so many. I mean, especially climbing Everest without using supplemental oxygen. I actually, in 2010, I was climbing on Everest with Dave Morton, who you met. Yeah, um, love Dave. Yeah, and it was my, my mentor, really, and like taught me a lot about climbing in the Himalayas and big mountains. And I remember sitting in our base camp tent together. Like, I'm not an overly emotive person. I don't like cry often. Um, but I remember like feeling near tears at this general um, sort of sarcastic vibe that I had passed through base camp and other professional climbers and other guides and members of this Everest climbing community that had written me off in a way. They were like, oh, yeah, Melissa like conned her sponsors somehow into paying for her to come back here and try this thing again because it was the second time I was there trying it. Got it. Little did we know it would take five times for me to be successful. Yeah, attempting to climb without using supplemental oxygen on trips that I subsequently, like I was mentioning before, did use the oxygen. And I just remember being like thinking, and I wrote something about it too. I could dig it up and find it. And I, I think I wrote about how more people didn't believe in me than did. And if you step away now, because we're in the future, like, right? Yeah. So now we've, I've achieved this thing, right? Uh-huh. And I did it really quietly. Like I didn't tell anybody I was going to do it. And that was part of me sifting through my motivations and making yeah. sure I wasn't looking for validation in having a big goal. Yeah. And I just sort of quietly, I actually lied a lot. And I said, oh, I'm not going to Everest this season. I, sa- I explicitly said that. And then I silently sort of went to the quieter side of the mountain, avoided all the climbing community, showed up. And by that time, my tent had been up there. So like some people knew I was coming, but I kept my motivations really private. And I had to go and like, just do this thing on my own. And, and I, at the end of it, it was like all these people that were so shocked and surprised. And I, I couldn't tell like, are you shocked and surprised? Cause I didn't tell you I was doing this or cause you didn't think I ever could. And I'm not, mo- that's sort of that non-competitive side of me. I'm not yeah. motivated by people saying you can't do this. That doesn't like drive me in that classic. I know a lot of, especially women are super motivated that way. If <laughs> right. you tell you me I can't, like watch right. me. <laughs> but I'm just not, I don't have enough like deep-seated anger to go yeah. that route yet. Yeah. I mean, I have other kinds of deep-seated anger, but <laughs> not in that way. And so I feel like, you know, I had to like get through like, what do I believe yeah. is possible? And the truth is, I don't know. And so why am I taking it so personally? And then this was, uh, this was what I wrote. Now I'm remembering exactly was that how dare I give these people who don't know me as well as I know me a right to tell me what they think I can do versus what I think I can do. And I had to like become really clear with that. And to just, when you're trying something that's bold and especially something that nobody else has done before or that very few people have done before, I think you really have to be willing to trust your own instinct of you know you best. And what am I pursuing? I'm not pursuing achieving this. I'm pursuing the curiosity of can I achieve this? And I'm cool with the answer. I just want the answer. It can be yes and it can be no. I'm not trying to prove something. I think that in the startup world, the the, um, parallel is Bezos saying you need to be willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. Almost forever until, <laughs> and you know what's crazy though? It's a, it's a slightly embarrassing human trait for us, I feel like, because once you achieve a success, I mean, 
I definitely share handshakes and hugs with all those just, I have a special term I'm using in my mind right now for them. Those people I know behind my back were always saying I couldn't do it. And there's something really beautiful about achieving something like what I did under my own power. And like, nobody can take that away from me. You know, nobody can say, oh, like, she, you know, she flew to 23,000 feet. Yeah, she paid people to carry her to the top. It's like, I toiled, I did all the hard work. Myself, my husband, we did that trip together, just the two of us. We hired no staff. We used the fixed lines that are present on Everest, which is really complicated not to use them. And so it would be silly not to. And I did it, and it can never be taken away from me. And you can say what you want about anything else, but I also put in you know, eight previous years of work on Everest to get to know that mountain to the point where I felt like I knew it well enough to be that naked in front of it, I guess I would say, you know, to be truly that vulnerable. And so it feels good to know, and it feels even better when I see the people that I know naysayed me, and I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) But also it feels good to know that, like, I didn't suddenly see myself as, like, an elite mountain climber when that achievement happened, because I knew the toil that went into it, and I know, like, you know, I can't... It doesn't mean that I'm immune from all of the responsibilities of learning how to be a better climber in certain disciplines. It doesn't mean that I suddenly am safe climbing Mount Rainier, which is, you know, more of a beginner glaciated peak. I still have to be heads up. I still have to pay attention to what's going on. I still have to train, make sure my skill set is as good as it can be. And if I want to continue to advance in other ways, like, I didn't get a pass card at all. I just got one moment in time that was awesome. And I achieved something that was really hard. And you know, now I have about a billion other hard things to try to achieve. So it's just a process. So two things I want to touch on. One is being female mm-hmm. in, I think, what is... Do you want to talk about your experience of being female? Culturally. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm fascinated by, and I'm, I'm trying to honestly shed a light, and in, in there are very few women in tech, and that's just totally. a massively, it's just, a, I would say, a cultural crisis. And mm-hmm. I think we're waking up, but it's like the the distance between waking up and us being a balanced yeah. gender whatever oriented it's it's a thousand miles and mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to do and I think one of the things that uh, I would love to hear from you is I think it's thought of as generally a male dominated industry and mm-hmm. so what is it like operating yeah. as a woman that's thing one and thing two would be the fear point you made earlier but let's let's focus on yeah it. I'm super impressed that you can keep up with like my ADD just shooting around all these different topics, so no. very impressive. <laughs> it's only matched with my own. <laughs> oh, great. And we're like, <laughs> it's like, how do I remember to come back to this point? Um, being a woman in a super male-dominated sort of atmosphere, professionally and passion-wise, mm-hmm. has been interesting. I don't know what the alternative is, right? Because I've only yeah. ever been a woman, so mm-hmm. I can only have my own experience. But one of the things that I think is the greatest blessing of being in the big mountains is that there's no gate you pass through going to climb Everest where the mountain Everest is like, you know, what's your economic background? What's your racial background? What's your cultural belief system? Oh, and what's your gender? Okay, now you can go. It doesn't matter, right? You show up with what you have and you put yourself to test, essentially, in this static super dynamic, but like same atmosphere. Everyone's yeah. experiencing the same thing, whether you have one set of organs or other, right? Like, so yeah. There's no difference. Yeah. And so there's something that I personally, just from an, in, I don't know that other people see it this way, but from a just confidence standpoint, I know that like I'm having the same experience as my male climbing partner. And almost all my climbing partners are men. It's densely saturated with super talented men. And, you know, it's starting to become spottily populated with women. And I think that that's partly 
I think it's more to do with cultural reasons than to yeah. do with like physical capability reasons. Of course. Because climbing and this big endurance stuff, it's just not suited well better to bigger people or more muscular people or any just genetic set that way. I think it's like has a lot to do with the cultural representation of women, especially like women. Well, most, so big mountain climbing in the Himalayas it can be expensive. It's time consuming. Those things typically start to come together for people in a middle age zone. Usually it's not super young people. It's like, hey, I've, have some life under me. Well, for a lot of women, that's when they have young kids or they have the notions of starting a family and that sort of tethers them more to that side of life. So I think you see less of a population of women yeah. in it because of that. That's changing, I hope, and I hope it continues to change. Yeah. I sort of set out in the earliest days, when I, like my very first summit of Everest, I remember coming back and you know, like the newspaper wanting to do an interview with me of like, oh, you know, this female mountain guide summited Everest. And I was like, but so did like about 200 other male mountain guides. And I just happened to be the only woman there, but like, it's just uninteresting other than my mm -hmm. like ovaries, which is right. not how you're gonna lead any headline <laughs> in a paper. I mean, the ovaries you know, make it to the summit. Ovaries made it to the summit, shocking. <laughs> um, you know, like it's just not so interesting. And so I really shied away from that kind of media mm -hmm. because I wanted to have something to stand on that would stand up to that neutrality yeah. of like, it shouldn't matter if I'm a woman or a man. And there is something that I think is really cool and powerful about being in this like unique set as like one of the only women, because it means that I was as good as the men, but I had to do something that women also hadn't done. And now every woman who wants to do it after me, like it's possible. Like I just, I proved that to you, right? Like I wasn't trying to prove that to you, but now you know it's possible for you too. And I'm not a oil executive from Texas. You yeah. know, like I, I came by this as, as honestly as I could in the process of being myself. And I just brought to the table my best version of myself every day and that, is good enough in climbing, but it's, it's a battle. You know, I mean, yeah. I, and I will say this too. I am certainly no martyr as being one of the only women. I know it is an absolute double-edged sword and I like both edges of it, to be honest. Like you get um, opportunities and attention for being a minority and especially being like a young, small, blonde haired girl. There's opportunities that presented themselves to me that probably didn't get presented to my equally skilled male counterparts. But as soon as I had that opportunity, then I had to like fight for my life to prove that not only did I get this because I was this minority that you thought was interesting, but because I also have the skills. And so for me, and I think in tech, this speaks truly to like, how do, you, how do we fix it as yep. a group of women? How do we create better gender balance? How do we encourage that? The only thing we can do as the population of the women who are is this minority and male dominated things is be the very best you can be at what you do. And you don't have to worry about if you were hired to fill a quota, because who cares? As long as you're doing the best job you can, then it doesn't matter. You don't have to wonder why you were there. And if you were there for the wrong reasons, who cares? Because you're still doing the best job you can. And if that's good enough, that's good enough. And it starts to just equalize and sort of blend the lines of why and how we have people in places. So beautiful. I remember talking to you about that briefly. Easy to um, say, so hard to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm trying to, you know, call attention to yeah. it, just to like give space to remark on it and to say, damn. Yeah, and know that there's hard days and easy days, right? Like yeah. for all of us, and I think we tend to live in these echo chambers, like we're becoming a little bit more aware of in this current time in life and like surround ourselves with people that look like us. And that happens gender-wise, that happens racially, that happens culturally. And the more that you can sort of thrust yourself into uncomfortable situations and try to excel, like the more you're gonna learn about the world, I think, and the more 
just generally nice, I think all people are going to be. And that's, I mean, I'll tell you what, being a female minority in my work sort of harkens back to part of my authentically hippie family was that my sister and I went to school on an Indian reservation as some of the only white kids and all Native Americans at our school. And so we were the minority, just racially and culturully. And it didn't, I didn't notice until we left that that we were treated any differently. You know, it just felt like the norm. And I think there's a lot to be learned from sitting in a space where you don't look like all the people around you and to own yourself. I think that's what it gives us because I think so much of what is the harmful things that happen in the world happen from insecurity and not really being cool with who we all are inside. And so figuring out how to do that. It's the gift of travel, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of perspective that comes with travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, then let's shift fear. to fear. Yeah, let's talk about fear. So uh, I opened with mentioning sort of life and death mm-hmm. and that uh, I'll say, unfortunately, I'm using my own words here, you should feel free to use your own, but it's a, it's a real, like you hike past people who have died mm-hmm. on your way to the summit mm-hmm. and you don't help them out of the ability to stay alive yourself. Yep. Um, you know, cra- I, I, I haven't experienced that and I think it's crazy responsibility to both have and to not have. Yeah. And um, it has to be a piece of the psyche fear like every day you are mm-hmm. in the arguably one of the most dynamic weather environments so dynamic, that you right? could possibly be in on this planet mm-hmm. and you're doing all those things simultaneously mm-hmm. how in the hell do you not get paralyzed with fear so i think that it for me which i can only speak to this experience so of myself I know. for me it has been the reverse has happened, I guess, instead of becoming paralyzed by this like really tangible fear of like, yes, people have died around me. I've seen people die, you know, to clarify, like when, you know, I'm climbing to the summit of any peak, if I see somebody in distress and I can safely help them without putting my clients or myself at risk, I absolutely will. And I have actually like turned around on the way to the summit of Everest to help a climber descend in that exact scenario and that felt right to me it doesn't always work that way right like it's yeah. not always Black that obvious yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so see being confronted with the very real reality of death and um you know on everest i think probably the most confronted i ever have been with it was in 2014 there was a single icefall avalanche that happened inside this really dangerous section of the climb in 16 local Nepali workers were killed in one accident and five of them were friends of mine that I'd worked with closely over the previous six years and it's easy to talk about risk in theory and and that fear that comes with risk but when it's you're confronted with I mean and this is quite graphic but like when you're literally confronted with a stack of bodies and helping to load them into a helicopter to get them to their families you know, where they can be cremated and, and said goodbye to, it's just a different kind of thing. And that's like warfare. Like no human should have to see that without knowing that that's what you're going into and climbing big mountains. You don't think that's ever what you're going to go into. And so there's this side of it that could rise up that is this fear is paralyzing because in a millisecond, there's zero reason why that person was there instead of me, you know, and, and, you could just be totally paralyzed by that. And for some reason in my brain and in my experience, it does the opposite, which it does this thing where it makes me feel super 
like comfy in my daily life. Because yeah. we're all confronted by the fact that like the only certainty of this existence is that living is fatal. We are going to die. Yeah. And t we all have some like really deep, I think, human innate fears of death and unknowns around death. And we do all sorts of things to prevent our deaths, you know, presumably every day. And we don't just like embrace that. And I don't embrace it, but I don't live a very fearful existence in the rest of my life. You know, yeah. like I think I live a hyper alert existence in all areas of my life. Like I'm, I definitely walk into a room and look up first to make yeah, sure there's no overhead hazards before I like enter. Yeah, you're, like, paying, you're, you're <laughs> trained to pay attention. Yeah, it's like sensitized me in yeah. ways that like probably normal people don't, don't look at, you right. know, like aren't quite as cued up to. So the scaffolding that's hanging yeah, out. Yeah, I actually <laughs> was like, I don't know if, uh, no, because there's no person operating right, it. So it took right. out the objective hazard, okay. right? It's just like a static hazard. Um, but then I think, like, it's a good thing in a way because it sort of reassures me that it's okay to have fear and to be confronted with the reality of death and sudden death and accidental death. Because I think death, being like, I'm cool with death, a lot of us can probably get there. I'm cool with accidental death. And I have a harder thing to get cool with. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, yeah. just like it kind of probably makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable to think about that right now. But I also think like it just makes me, it sort of puts in check that normal fear that we all have. And less, I have to tell you the truth of it, it's less in regards to myself because if I die, I die. Like, I'm done. I don't care really how I die. I'm not like there to grieve my death. It's like thinking about the people I love dying. Yeah. And that's where the fear for me comes in. It's like, I don't, and I would, I say this, you know, I had an accident happen climbing with a climbing partner and my climbing partner died and I did not, obviously. And I, in the end of that experience, I said so many times, and I still hold to this day, the easier thing would have been if I would have died. You know, because dealing with people close to you dying is so hard. Yeah. And that's where the fear lives for me. Yeah. It's like I fear another accident like that. I fear that happening. But then being, you know, constantly communicating and like existing as a guest on nature's <laughs> terms yes. makes me feel better about it. Because I'm like, you know what? whether you believe there's a design to it or not, like we're all at the mercy of it in some way. And so I kind of have to find a way to, to be in the flow with knowing that this, you know, this could stop. Snap. Yeah, exactly. Advice to other folks. I think there's a, there's a, a fear that keeps people from doing things. Totally. It's maybe a little less prescient right. than <laughs> death, death yes. in the Kumba Icefall, mm -hmm. but what, like advice? I think fear to fail, right, is the biggest thing. And I have always um, sort of mentally put failure as like fail and live are the same word, sort of like. So if I have, if I take inaction as a fear to fail, I'm taking it as inaction as a fear to live. And because well, failure we'll say is it one an, more time, that was so fast. <laughs> work with so, me here. Yeah. yeah. So like I replace the word fail because okay. I think it's easy to be like I'm afraid of failing. Yep. With the word live, uh, and I'm so afraid I'm afraid of living. of living because in a way, living is failing. Like we're just going to repetitively fail through lot, fail our way through all sorts of experiences until like we have a little modicum of success, and then we're like going to get good at that and then and start failing it. at yeah. everything else again, right. and to be not afraid of living because it's easier to think of it in those terms you know like i'm not gonna live a life that i am afraid of living a life and i'm gonna sort of like embrace that failure and i don't know this is probably pretty complicated but like take your ego out of it and don't make it so personal when you feel like because yeah. that's what paralyzes us in big and little decisions is the fear of 
I'm going not to succeed with this. And it's like, well, of course you're not going to succeed. Probably at most things you do. Like, there's very few things you're just going to blatantly succeed at. And what a snooze, right? Like, honestly, probably not going to keep pursuing those things. Because, you know, you know, it's a process. And, like, the good stuff comes from failing. And so that's where, to me, I just, like, mentally shift it to living. And so that's, like, the advice today, especially to young people who are, like, because I feel like, again, the gifts of my parents and sort of being untethered in the way that they were, they didn't, I don't have a fear and I got this from them. I just don't have a fear of trying something, realizing it's not working and changing my mind and doing something different. And so often we put these like parameters up, like if I quit my job and go do this thing, like what if it doesn't work out? It's like, what if it doesn't? Like, and then what? Like, you don't die, right? right. Like, you're not dead. It's okay. Like, you're going to then just do something else. Like, and of course there's tangible, like, oh, and I get this all the time. I'm like, well, you don't understand. Like, you know, wait till you have like a, you know, a mortgage, wait till you have like a family, wait till you have all this, and then you'll understand. And I'm like, I don't know that the wait until, I think you either choose to understand it or you don't. You know, I think it's like, you kind of just got to be okay with taking that little feeling of falling and knowing that it's going to stop eventually and try to make that a soft landing <laughs> if you can. But know that it's cool if it's not. So much wisdom baked into there. There you go. All right. I'm, I'm going to shift gears now <laughs> and I'm going to go a little bit more about you personally. Yes. So, I'm a Sagittarius, which if that wasn't clear already. <laughs> uh, so that's a December birthday. Uh-huh. Wow, so good. Uh, that's that's, that's know, like, like the one, like, like a five, sister right? or something. Yeah, 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 like yeah, the yeah. people in your immediate life that yeah. you know. You're like, oh, you must be an Aries. No, uh, <laughs> so I, and we've talked about this. We've talked about it off camera. We've, talked, we've been mm-hmm. friends for a long time. When do you see yourself doing this forever? What do you translate this into? Do you have an idea of where this is, like what mm-hmm. you're pulling on right now? Where, where is yeah. it going? Because do you keep walking uphill slowly? Mm-hmm. Or do you try and, you know, do you go to, um, to other mountains? Yeah. I know part of what, I know this is, a, I'm, I'm answering the question yeah, I'm ask it. a little bit, but like I know that you want to give back and part mm-hmm. of your connection to, to Everest um, has been yeah. the Juniper Fund. Mm-hmm. And so maybe talk a little bit about where your sort of your mastery of this universe. Yeah. Where is it taking you next? Yes, definitely. So I think the same way that I choose a climbing objective is sort of how I choose a life objective, which is to say it's complicated. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't, when I'm on a mountain climbing actively and people say like, oh, what are you going to do next? Like, or what peak are you going to climb? And I always say like this, that's like calling out somebody else's name when you're like with your boyfriend. You can't do that. Like, I can't cheat on this mountain. Like I'm here doing this now, but I definitely wait until I'm inside of that discomfort to find the inspiration for the next thing. And so I don't have this like master plan that's written out of my life where it's like, this is where I want to be. And this is what I'm working towards at the moment. I really take the inspiration of each experience because I'm learning something and it's altering who I am and the things that I can bring to the next experience. So I don't want to have like too much rigidity in where I think I'm going. And so I really am like always trying to sort of feel that out. And one thing that has happened super organically like that has been my philanthropic work. And I would love to sit here a little bit taller perhaps and be like, I, you know, run a non, I founded a nonprofit which supports 39 families and I do this out of the goodness of my heart. It's like, I don't have time to do this. I don't have any skill set to do this. I'm not good at doing this. But I saw that passion that was necessary that 
that necessity and I knew that no one else was doing it and I had to do it. And so in 2010, when I was climbing on a peak near Everest in Nepal, the accident I was alluding to was with a climbing partner of mine who was a Nepali Sherpa and a close friend. He worked in the United States. We'd formed a close relationship over the preceding couple years climbing together. And on a climb we were doing together, he was killed. And he had two young sons and a wife. And I had to go back to their home without him when we left together. And it changed my life, you know. It, it totally changed everything for me. And on a sort of big picture level, I committed to his family that I wanted to pay them what his salary would have been as long as I had work. If I had work and I was capable of doing it, I wanted to put back into their family what he would have brought because I felt responsible. He was with me, you know, and felt, I felt like that was the right thing to do. I quickly realized that the impact that that small thing had in their lives was massive because it allowed them to sort of surf, to do the grieving that they needed to do without worrying about how to feed themselves yeah. and how to pay for education. And I really realized that like this is a need that many families have and, and they aren't, I don't think that family's lucky. They lost their husband and father. It's not lucky, but it was lucky that they had somebody like me who was there who was willing to sort of look at a solution for how to help not just guilt money of like, here, take this money, I feel so bad, but like, how can we make this situation better? Yeah, and recurring and yes. sustainable. Sustainable, yeah. 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 And so so many families, especially of the Nepali workers, the economics in Nepal are crazy. It's, a, it's like the third poorest non-African country in the world. Um, it has, you know, their main export is tourism, and then they have like power that they sell to India, and the economics are really volatile. They don't have a constitution. It's just a lot of things going on in the country. Um, that are challenging. Yeah. And so the local workers that work in the mountains expose themselves to incredible risks. Sometimes that results in death. And they don't have a support structure from the government, from individuals, unless they're just lucky, lucky enough to have been working for somebody who feels bad enough to give a little cash. And usually it's a one-time thing and it doesn't support a family. So Dave Morton, who I was mentioning, was my climbing partner and mentor who yeah. you know we climbed Kilimanjaro with. Ours, yeah. Yes, um, way more stylish than I am, honestly, like also. So if, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have us on together because I would feel like way outstyled by the two of you. Um, we both had been working in Nepal at that point for a while and we both recognized this need to do something bigger. And I said like this model of what I've done with Chuang's family seems like it's working really well. And so we started the Juniper Fund in 2012. And what we do is we pay the families of local mountain workers who are killed in the mountains while working. We pay them a cost of living grant for five years. So it's a temporary grant, so they don't become financially dependent on us. Mm -hmm. And it's about equal to what a year's salary would be for an average worker. It's $3,000 a year every year at the same time, it's non-discretionary. We don't tell them this has to be used for education or this has to be used for something else. We let them choose what they want, give them that freedom back, that power back that they once had when their primary breadwinner was bringing home a paycheck. And we also create opportunities for those families to become fully financially independent. So we provide vocational training classes for widows, brothers, whomever is the family member that's benefiting, and mothers. And, um, and then we provide small business grants so that they can open their own businesses. And I think right now I'd have to totally like do the counting. I think we have somewhere between five to seven businesses we that we've Christina started. Right yeah, do how many total businesses? I mean, she probably have to do the counting too because we were just <laughs> over in Nepal and like we just started a couple more right now, so. Yeah, a chicken farm and five restaurants at this time. Yeah, and so, <laughs> yeah, that came from 
you know, training these women in restaurant management. And then we're putting, you know, another handful of women through, women and men through um, language classes, a variety of language classes too. One guy's taking Korean classes, a lot of English classes. And so that they can better their own situation. So at the end of the five years, they can be through that primary grieving period and have some sort of ability to be financially stable and empowered. And I did not ever foresee how big it would become. Mm -hmm. That accident I mentioned where 16 workers were killed in one accident changed the face of the Juniper Fund because suddenly we had 16 families. We anticipated about two or three a year. And we had 16 in one year. And then the following year, the earthquake happened in Nepal and we added another 14 families. So as of today, we have 39 families and we're committed to supporting all of them for five years and then continuing to be supportive of them through the rest of their lives or our lives. And that, to me, is the most meaningful work of my life, honestly. If you're going to write something about me on you know, my obituary, it's like I hope that that leads. I'd rather be known as somebody who had a positive social impact in a country that is so important to me and has given me so much and has given me that sort of accolade and propelled my career. I would love to be known for having done something positive to help contribute back to that country. And I'm not doing it, you know, like you're all doing it. You can donate to the Juniper Fund yourselves. I, it's not me paying my money. You know, I'm spending my time and I am paying my money, but it's just generous donors. I mean, really, most of our donations come from private donors wow. who have either been impacted by an experience in Nepal or who just like the mountains and say, yeah, you know, giving a couple hundred dollars to this cause is truly meaningful and our monies are going to support these families in a really cool way. Yeah, I think so, there's something about being a part of a thing that has so much impact where you can actually mm -hmm. feel. Oh, it's like real tangible. Yeah, it's very, very tangible. And, and yeah. some money goes a long way. And you know the families and the families are <sighs> verifiably under duress, you know, with someone. Well, and I go and see them early on in the process of after an accident's happened and then continue to visit with them again and again over the years. And it is like meeting different people every time because the process of grief and the process of, because they're in two types of grief, right? Like the loss of somebody you love and also the fear of how am I gonna survive now just eating. And that is something that like, we just don't experience very much in the West. And the, yeah. you know, it's just not something we have a lot of like government welfare programs that prevent that from being a real reality for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's not to say it doesn't exist, but it's less common. And right. so to see people more from this totally gripped with fear, to, I mean, women who, by no measure of their imaginations, do they ever think they would own their own business and be making enough money to put their kids in school and be, like, fully flourishing and sustainable. It's just the most beautiful and wonderful thing. And I think a real testament for me to how passion can be successful, to kind of, like, turn it back to what yeah. we were talking about at yeah, the beginning, yeah. is that if you want to see a business fail, like, just fail, <laughs> no parachute-type failing ask two mountain guides to like run a nonprofit. <laughs> like that's a great way to watch something just like tank. But this is so meaningful. And like these highly unprepared two mountain guides, Dave Morton and myself, who are like also working full time, are trying to like scrape together like a the paperwork to get like an approved nonprofit and then like be responsible with the money that we're trying to raise and get it to the families and get this all going into this now like highly functioning system that we have that's like a really functional, low overhead, high, high impact, impact yeah. nonprofit that I am embarrassed and proud to be attached to. I'm embarrassed because I'm like, I have no right to be 
doing something that's this successful because I know nothing about this, like zero. Like but I'm there's going a through, beautiful lesson in there, is there not? It, there's such a beautiful lesson because I think when you think again about like bring it into the middle section of like fear and stuff, I don't fear going and walking under big Ciracs that could fall and kill me. I fear like sitting at a desk and having to fill out forms to make sure that our nonprofit is properly registered, like terrifying. Like it just can't possibly, like, it makes me feel like short of breath even thinking about that. And so I did it, right? Like, yeah. And then I got smart and I hired somebody Thanks, Christine, um, who's much better at doing it than yeah. me and can help us be more effective. And yeah, it's a total lesson in the fact that like, I think no matter what it is, like, it, and I always say this is true too, like intention is worth two thirds of action. Like when your intentions are really good, even when your actions are like kind of mediocre because you don't know what you're doing, it kind of fixes itself in a way. And that's kind of nice. People, people will be more likely to listen and, and help you and help, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not doing this so that anybody knows I did it. Um, I'm doing this because it's a total necessity and I am not good at asking people for money, but I'm much less good at sitting at a table with a widow who's crying and telling her I can't help her, you know? So I like you prioritize like which thing is less uncomfortable. Like asking people for money is way less uncomfortable than like sitting with grieving widows for sure. Hands down. Like Definitely. <laughs> That's a fair perspective. Yeah. There's so many things that you said in that last moment, whether it's referencing Christine, where mm -hmm. Christina or Christine? Christine. Christine. Whether it's referencing Christine and the team that you guys mm -hmm. have. Christine uh, and Dave and I yeah, have run the show. Have like born, or your relationship with the climbing partner mm -hmm. with whom your life is literally. Not even figuratively. Tied to. Literally tied to. <laughs> yes. Um, and tied to success together and mm -hmm. failure together. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about sort of teamwork in your career, in on the mountain, in your nonprofit. It's obviously a theme. Um, I have some awesome metaphor cliches for you here. Okay. Okay. So something that Dave Morton, this mentor who is the co-founder of the Juniper Fund with me, we talk a lot about this, um, and, it, and he calls it the brotherhood of the rope. And what it is when you're attached together by a climbing rope is that you stop using words because your communication comes from your movements and you can feel each other's movements and you always know that you're moving towards the same objective. And if one person's moving at a quicker speed than the other, you have to figure out how to fix that because you can't move at two different speeds and you can't move in two different directions. And so there's this real reality of just like projecting in life that you're kind of always in the brotherhood of the rope with somebody, whether that's like a personal relationship that you're in, whether that's your friendships, whether that's your professional growth, you're in these sort of roped relationships where your communication with words kind of ceases because it's not easy to hear, not easy to understand. And you instead are in this like intuitive line of this is a thing between us that allows us to, as long as we're moving towards the same objective, figure out how to move at the same pace and figure out how we assess hazards together. And you become like this single little amoebic thing rather than this individual. You're a new kind of individual that includes somebody else. And I honestly think that like being a self-centered person is probably more challenging in some ways than caring about somebody else because it's easy for me to like care more about somebody else's health, happiness, well-being, and comfort than maybe my own sometimes. And so you suddenly are attached to somebody who you're so concerned with their health, happiness, well-being, and forward motion that you disregard the discomforts that you're feeling because you're moving for the unit, not for yourself. 
you know, so I don't know if that no, it's, little I, metaphor. That's amazing. That was hard to make me? up all on the spot right there. All yeah. I had was Brotherhood of the Rope. I had no idea where I was going to go. But <laughs> clearly you, you know it intuitively because you've lived I it lived for it, yeah. your entire career. Right? Yeah, and I do think that um, it's like, yeah, you just, you team takes on a whole new thing. You know, it takes on, because I do think that so often what we're, striving for is individual success but it's born through i mean there's no such thing honestly to be totally clear even the most single individual successful person that we can think of who we say oh that person is successful their success is born from tons of brotherhoods of ropes i mean there's so many ropes they're attached to that have gotten them to this point and that is most definitely true for me i thought that you know i really wanted to like climb Everest without the assistance of anything, including supplemental oxygen. This is like a very childish defiance that I've maintained since I was like about three, where it's like, I can do it myself. Like, that's basically what I said. I was like, no, I, I can do figure, it myself. I could never think of I know, you in would those you? terms. Are you so shocked? surprising. So shocking. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time together. I need to do everything myself. <laughs> I'm like, Chase, don't, help me. Let's show my backpack. Like, go away. Yeah. And so this was in my mind, like this grand display of like, I can do it myself. I don't need your help. Oxygen, like necessary element for Life. all of our survival. I don't need you. Like, I got this but at the same time like this is you know interesting when I was on the like final push for 14 hours (laughs) to the summit of Everest without oxygen moving just just death crawl slowly I had a lot of time to think not a lot of oxygen to think but I do remember thinking about the fact that I was being moved along by all of the people who had taught me things and had believed in me and even the ones that hadn't like it was this incredibly solo experience that was so super collaborative like it took all of that to allow me to have that one uh, success of my own and you kind of realize like embarrassingly like I didn't do this alone like nothing really is done alone you know it's all done with teams and I think even when you're on like these solo sort of journeys internally or externally or whatever you're really doing it with the help of a team and I think that's kind of part of cracking the code and I'm still working deeply on this but like to be a good team member and also to be a leader and like know how to be both yeah like that's the secret baby I don't know let's go to leadership for a second because I have had a very first-hand account of your leadership skills and just a little quick little context so um, Melissa and myself and probably, I don't know, 15 other people? Yeah, 10, I think 10, about 10 or 15, 15 yeah. Um, went to Africa to climb Kilimanjaro, which is the tallest peak in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, in an effort 19,340 feet. Yeah, let's just Pretty high. Up. It's called Pretty 20. High. I guess you yeah, don't 20, round. Yeah, 20,000 feet. What, about 20,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> Very high. I guess you don't round off and climb. It's really you It's a real off. specific and, yeah. like, nuanced. It's annoyingly yeah. that yeah. way. Yeah. Fair, yeah. fair, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> um... And it was to raise awareness for access to clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. And um, it was fun. There was a handful of us. We were sending messages back, and we had folks on the ground. And there was a bunch of fancy folks involved. We, we went all the way to the Obama White House mm-hmm. and to Bono. And, and, and I think it was reasonably successful. Um, but the, the core <laughs> to anything that could be called, to use your words, a modicum of success yeah. was being on the mountain being safe, putting one foot in front of another over and over and over with a bunch of well-trained people, mm-hmm. yourself, Dave, yep. and 
it was extraordinary to watch you lead a group of largely incapable people. <laughs> Somewhere in all of you, there was capability, and that is what led to like. I mean, it's like there was literally, it was literally there was rock stars, people who were smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, bef- like at base camp before we they, left. Like qu- quit smoking, like to just do this trip, yeah. and then pretty much started smoking like the seventh day when the trip was done. That's right. Yeah. But so I've had the good fortune of seeing you lead. Uh, what's do you have a? Is that innate in you? Is that something that you? Have crafted over time, being mm-hmm. a guide. Yeah. Um, what are and what are the core, what are the core characteristics you feel like? I think both. I mean, I've definitely crafted it being a guide. I've sort of like exercised my leadership muscle all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But like, just also, I'm a control freak, as I mentioned. Plus, like, super type A, and like, leadership suits me well because yeah. I like to be in control of things. But I also, um, I think it comes partially from being a little bit of a challenged learner myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not like your typical learner. I really am super tactile. I have to touch things and see things the exact way you are to truly learn them. So yeah. like if you teach me something sitting here, I would love to be standing behind you to learn it. Yeah. I'd love to see it from your perspective. And that has given me, I think what is my greatest asset of leadership, which is empathy. And I can really see people in a variety of different, like say, you know, this wide range of, people who are trying to climb this mountain, again, we're all like aligned towards the same goal. And I can just see, like, rather than feeling judgmental of like what you are or not expert at in this realm, I can be really empathetic of who you are as a person and what you're bringing to this and how hard it must be to be this far out of your element. Because I like being in control and I like being the expert and I do not do well when I'm not. And pretty much all my clients are always that person, right? Like they're usually pretty successful and and used to being good at something. and And I have like, genuinely all the admiration in the world for my clients for being willing to be that vulnerable in front of me or anybody. And so I try to, in my leadership, I try to approach it with a type of empathy and kindness and also just like astute observations of your most um, fundamental things. And I think there's something about being in the mountains when it gets really hard that we like revert back to being children. So I can kind of pretty quickly see like how you probably responded best to discipline as a child. And I can figure out if like yelling at you is better than like cuddling you or if cuddling you is going to work better. And like we just become very childlike when we're cold and hungry and like walking uphill and physically exerting ourselves. So I am like basically always just channeling the inner children out of people and then like trying to reassure that inner child in whichever way is possible to let the external adult like know it's cool. Like we got this, you know? And yeah. I, I also, I'm a real optimist when it comes to people. Like I deeply believe in what, because, and again, I'm not, this isn't trying to be humble, but like I know where my own mediocrity is and I know what I've been capable of achieving. So I know that when somebody is like, putting themselves in front of me and they're like perfectly average. I know what they're capable of too. Like I've seen the inside of me. I know what's in there. It's not like something super exceptional or elite. It's just pretty normal. And so I have this deep belief in other people of what they're capable of. And I just am always trying to like puzzle and crack the code of like, how do I help them achieve that too? We had such a range of physical ability. And emotional preparedness Um, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I was, it was, to say herding cats is like the most <laughs> largest understatement. We're on the side of a 20,000 foot peak. Oh my gosh. And you're, there's no like, there's no No, there's like, people who are sleeping outside for the first time in their entire life. Like, and not just sleeping outside, but maybe walking outside for more than like on a city park for the yeah. first time ever. Yeah. And, and then there's talking. people who are like really connected to the earth, but have no physical <laughs> abilities or like desire necessarily to even be doing this. And you're like trying to figure it all out. Yeah. 
It's really hard. I think that the good thing for me is that I mostly spend time with people who want to be doing this thing mm -hmm. and they're like really invested in it for whatever reason. And if I can try to find that motivation, I can kind of like continuously. I mean, I think the best training for being a leader probably is like a psychology degree, honestly. Yeah. You know, because it's kind of that. You're like kind of constantly balancing the psychology of others with yours and how that works together. And I just want to say, like, not everybody loves my leadership. Like, shocking as that may be to you, I know. <laughs> um, not everybody thrives with my type of leadership. And I am now at a point in my life where I'm okay with that. Like, again, I just know there's good fits and bad fits, and I don't love everybody who I interact with. And so yeah. why would everybody love me? Yeah. You know, but I also feel like, I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who does seem to get it. Yeah. And I constantly find myself, much like you, like randomly re-mingling back with those people, you know? Because yeah. it's like, hey, we kind of get each other. Like, yeah. this, this works. And you weren't one of the people that needed a lot of guidance on that trip, <laughs> thankfully, because my skills were pretty, like, maxed out um, at that point. But, yeah. You yeah. were, say, herding cats. It was like a <laughs> massive understatement. It was super, super impressive. Um, when you talk about, uh, I think there's an interesting reflection you're making about being um, mediocre mm -hmm. at a handful of things, and you know, to what to what degree does sort of self eval and honesty mm -hmm. and, and how to, yeah, how does that how does that play into how you approach you know, not so, just climbing but like, yeah, I think everything, and I, I think that that's the struggle with our own egos, right? Because like in the you know, and I don't claim to have any sort of, again, expertise in this. I'm just figuring it out. It's an experiment for me like mm -hmm. it is for all of us. But I think that be, somebody said this to me, somebody who I um, really deeply respect. And he said, like, the only face I have to look at when I'm shaving in the morning is mine. And that meant something to me in a way of, like, it. it's true, but you also have to look truly all the way in. Yep. And so... If I buy the hype of all the good things people think about me, I'm not going to be very nice to be around, right? Like, it's going to be, I'm going to annoy you rather quickly. And if I am mired in insecurity, same problem. Like, it's hard to be around me for other people, but it's also hard to be around yourself in that way. And so I think just being willing to remove the distractions that we constantly shroud ourselves with that prevent us from seeing who we really are and like actually, yeah, being honest about your evaluation. And I don't know if by the hype is the right way to say it, but I think that's probably the most useful skill for all of us, whether there's like external media hype that are writing things about you or it's just your friends around you. It's like you have to be able to separate what other people think of you and what you're doing and your skill set and how they believe in you with what the truth of the situation is. Yeah. And it's not always nice to confront, but it's important to confront because how can you move if you're not moving from a place of honesty? It's like, I totally can fly. It's like, no, you can't. <laughs> like, yeah. And belief is not going to get you there. You know, It's just not going to. And it's like, okay, maybe creativity can say, I can create a way to fly. Well, that's the more honest sentiment. So trying to like constantly always like figure out that is what I'm always doing. It was fun to watch you in action. Um, problem solve because yeah. literally I'm problem solving 15 different people's there was like complex dynamic psychology plus like weather plus like anxiety about summoning plus like production around so there's like camera filming, courage yeah. or camera fear going on in a lot of cases and just to like keep and everybody needed a different kind of either like cuddling or you know <laughs> being kicking yeah <laughs> kicking or cuddling basically that's like my general spectrum where do you fit on this spectrum i'm gonna kick you or i cuddle you um and it's hard yeah, yeah. it's real hard 
and, and helping people become honest with themselves. And you know, the interesting thing is, especially in climbing, my general job as a guide, I always think, is to be a liaison between you and the mountain and to not otherwise impact your experience. I'm there to help you differentiate between discomfort and danger. And if it moves to the realm of danger, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you and us as a team safe. If it's in the realm of discomfort, I'm going to do everything I can to encourage you through that with the tools you already have of how to be okay being uncomfortable. And people come to me with a lot of different tools and different developed skill sets of being uncomfortable. And some people are just not good at it at all. So it's a lot of work. Like I have a blister. You're like, wow. Or I'm cold. I'm a little bit cold. Like I'm colder than I would be if I was in a temperature controlled room and they're like, it's an emergency for them because it truly feels like an emergency. It's like, how do I help you know this is not an emergency and feel safe enough yeah. to continue? And so I, the thing I struggle with more often than not isn't people's overconfidence, it's their underconfidence. You know, it's that lack of believing in themselves and forming a relationship that is honest enough from my side. Like I said, I wouldn't tell you you weren't a handful if you were. Because one thing is, if I tell you that and you were a handful, like our trust is immediately broken because you know how to be honest with you. You have to look at your own face in the mirror when you shave. You know you're a handful. And so you know I'm lying to you. And so you maybe even subliminally, you don't trust me anymore. And so now when I try to dig deep and pull that thing out of you, you won't let me because I've broken your trust. So sometimes my clients feel like I can be hard on them, but it's for like the greater good of me having a really honest relationship with them. So when I say like, you have this, you've got this, I know you can do it. This is what we're gonna do to get you there. They know I'm not just like fluffing them along, you know, it's real. So, God, so (laughs) when you climb a mountain with someone, like you're literally, like there's this metaphor that we've been talking about the whole time. Um, I, I observed and I have, you know, climbed just not that much relative to any who, someone who's a professional, just enough mm-hmm. to be dangerous to yeah. you know, to make films in these environments. Yeah, be able to keep yourself yeah, safe. Exactly, and um, but I observe in my own experience, and especially on that trip, the mental game. Mm-hmm. And like you said it several times, both sort of cognizantly and in passing, like, oh yeah, you know, you go into your own head, and you, and so to what degree? do you think success is mental? To the degree with which you think it is. You know, so there's that trap of yeah. the mind, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that you can absolutely 100% talk yourself into or out of anything, right? So in that way, success is exactly what you believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you, more readily, you can talk yourself out of something. And especially when you're uncomfortable and out of your element. So I think about the most common time that it happens where I see people in their heads where they feel that they're in danger is about between three and five in the morning. So just before the sun comes up, it's the coldest, darkest hours of the day. You feel like you are out at sea and there is no islands in view at all. Like you're just out in the middle of it. The summit seems impossibly far away and the camp from which you came seems even further away. And that's where people's mental motivation and their thoughts really dictate their experience. And they can stop themselves or propel themselves either way, you know. And so I always find that that's where my work has to kick in. And, like, that's where I've got to be your biggest cheerleader to let you know, like, this isn't awesome for anybody, including me. Like, I'm not having fun right now. Like, this is not the fun (laughs) part. Like, this is not – no one's having fun right now. You know, like, eat a cookie. Eat a candy bar at 3 in the morning and you're not – drunk in college and like well, that's winning right like <laughs> just let's find small joys and like continue moving forward and then the sun is going to come up and as soon as it does 
it's like your <laughs> world. The world is reborn. It's crazy yeah, what happens because yeah. then suddenly you can see where you are. The lights turn on. The, and you're, for those of you who don't know, the lights you, quite literally turn yeah, on <laughs> when you're when you're climbing one of these. It's a multi-day sleep in the mud, mm-hmm. sleep at altitude, altitude sickness, headache. A lot of people not feeling well. Um, it's very uncomfortable. And the on the summit day, you are in the dark. Mm-hmm. You, you get up about twelve thirty. Yeah, one your in the life morning. is the sphere of your headlamp. Yeah, and it's very cold. And you're in Africa, and you don't think it's supposed to be cold, but you're like looking no. at snow fields ahead of you, and you don't get like your world is literally this like the, the radius of your headlamp, mm-hmm. and you're on a rope or you're in, in, in not a in, line with yeah, a couple people, right? And just putting one foot in front of another and taking a full inhale and exhale mm-hmm. every single step because it's yeah. hard work. That is a small, narrow, scary, <laughs> so often bored. Yeah, um, boring, sleepy. sleepy. I always call it the sleepy time because, yeah. like, it's the time where no matter how psyched you were when you started at midnight, it's like three in the morning, and you're like, mm, "Okay, how many more? Oh, you're like, oh, just right now? twelve more hours of mm-hmm. walking." Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because I so two things that I do every time I have like a slight inkling of desire inside of me to do something big, like a big goal that I want to pursue that has anything to do with climbing or physical aspect, I reconsider it at that moment. And I think that that's like one of the best barometers I personally have for like, is this a good choice for me or not? Because especially if there's cocktails involved, but anytime you're in a temperature controlled room, big ideas seem always good. It's like, right. let's go climb Kilimanjaro. That would let's be awesome. Do it. Here we Everybody are. Everybody decided to do it in a temperature controlled room. Nobody yes. was like at altitude at 3 a.m. in the dark deciding to do it because it's hard to decide to do it. But if you can be on board then, like that's where I feel like you're good. You know, yeah. like you're, you know it's going to be hard because at that time, the other thing that's in my mind is like, this is so dumb. Like, I should have learned how to surf. Like, there's so many better <laughs> things that I could be doing with my life. Like, this is embarrassing that, like, I'm wearing literally all my clothes right now. I'm freezing. <laughs> like, these people are walking quite slow. And I went, like, it just, it's just... We're not, not talking, just no breathing heavy talking. in the this dark. This is not fun. Like, I'm hungry, but not really. I'm a little nauseous, too. Like, I just, what am I, what have I done with my life? Like, I had a potential. <laughs> like, you know, that's I go to the dark place. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Like, and I love this. I've made yeah. my life about this because yeah. I know that it's temporary um, and I can somehow like mentally get through it. But it's my job then to like help you remember that it's temporary. And often that involves like not talking to you, yes, you know, because it's, like, it's, it's like, the, that's like the no coffee, don't talk to me zone where you're just yeah. like, don't try to fix it right now. Like, it's not just know that time is ticking and it will get fixed. Like the sun will come and do magical things to all of us. So I'm going to go, that's very sort of team oriented and you're guiding Mm -hmm. folks like me and others up a peak. And then there's you, Mm -hmm. 250 vertical feet below the summit of Everest and Mm -hmm. you don't have oxygen. What's that By the com- way, 250 vertical feet below the summit of Everest without oxygen is about two hours of climbing still. Just think about that. With oxygen, it's about 15 minutes. <laughs> so wow. there's like a real like matrix you've entered where time and distance no longer apply to each other in the same ways that they used to. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that is insane wow. yeah. is it's so slow. What's the, what's the cognition like? Yeah. Um, so for, for I've only done it once. I'm not going to try to do it again. So I can only say what was happening really in my mind then. And um, I was, when things are really, really hard for me, and that was a time when it was really hard, but it also was easier because I saw how close it was. But I knew that, 
you know, it's only halfway, right? Because I still have to descend safely. So like getting there, I know I, by no means do I feel the sense of relief, but I know I'm that close to halfway, which feels good, <laughs> <laughs> weirdly. Do the math there. Yeah, do the math, yeah. figure out like you're only in the middle of it. Um, I, when things are really hard, try to go to this mental place. And this is a tool I used when I started training um, for these big climbs by running like long races, marathons or ultra marathons or whatever, because I deeply dislike running. And so I used it as a mental training to say, if I could run a marathon, <laughs> if I can run for like three or four hours at a time, I definitely can like climb for, you know, 15 hours because I like climbing. I don't like running. But I would when it got really hard, I would go to this place of like dedicating sort of like a mile of gratitude towards some person, place, thing, whatever that had helped me get to where I was. And I found myself just like really naturally doing that near the summit of Everest. And it was like this trudge through the trenches of gratitude of my life, of all of the people particularly that had offered me any small thing and in the smallest of things. And I literally was in my mind thinking about my first year working as a mountain guide when that lead guide who I just totally respected but was super stoic and barely ever complimented anybody said like, yeah, I like working with Melissa because she's a hard worker. And I was thinking about that and how that sentence had buoyed me through that whole first season, really. You know, and it's inconsequential. They don't remember saying it. And then going deeper into like the more meaningful relationships in my life with people who had put in the work to believe in me even when I was, you know, waffling or going through massive transitions and just sort of, I mean, that's how it felt. It was like trudging through all of the wonderful things in my life that had brought me to that moment and how it was such a shared experience. Like I, it was so non-solitary for how alone it really was. It was so non-solitary. It was so built on the backs of everybody else who had really helped me get there. And I also had this really intense feeling that it wasn't the pinnacle of what my life would be. You know, like I kind of knew. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of this climb because I still have to descend, but I'm like in the middle of this life. And the thing that's going to be the thing, like I feel immensely proud of myself for sticking with something that's so hard over eight years, not like eight minutes or eight hours or eight months, like eight years, and then seeing it through, like this has just now given me a tool set that I can use to do something else. It's not gonna be the pinnacle of what I'm gonna do. And that's truly what I was thinking. Wow. Yeah, no. And then I cried, and I, like I said, I'm not like a crier. I called Christine on the sat phone to tell her that I was there and I was sort of checking in periodically to like let her know in the US in Seattle. So I like, I mean, it was the middle of the night, I guess, because yeah. it was the middle of the day there. And like up waiting for the phone call. Newborn yeah. baby, like a couple week old newborn baby. So She's up, awake. up anyway. Right? <laughs> um, and I was so super emotional because I just, there, it was disbelief, really. Like, Holy, and disbelief, but also like deep knowledge that I could do it, you know? Like yeah. it was just so cool to be at that point of like, here I am. This I've literally worked towards something. It's hard to work towards something and fail at it so many times and keep going back and trying again. And I think that's what people could ridicule. It's like, why go back? Why go back? And all I can say is I needed that 250 vertical feet of gratitude to sort of like re-anchor me into not thinking I'm just like some amazing person. Like I needed to reroute myself to the fact that 
those first steps I took, my very first peak I ever climbed to the summit of when I was 19 years old and like seeing the mountains for the first time are what got me to the summit of Everest. It wasn't those steps actually walking to the summit of Everest. It was every single thing that happened along the way. Wow. Yeah. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Let's do, but Let's we'll, do. We'll, we, we should won't probably, keep any more of your time. We should, yeah, we should probably turn the cameras off. We'll keep talking. <laughs> What's the best uh, way for people to pay attention to you? Are you just Melissa Arnault? Yep. Or, okay. Yeah, so Melissa, A-R-N-O-T, um, all the social media. I try to keep people apprised to all the different adventures that I'm doing, and um, you can always check my website and see what kind of things are going on. As, and the Juniper Fund? Yep, the juniperfund.org. Um, a lot of people ask about Juniper. It's burned as like sort of a cleansing and protecting thing in the Buddhist culture, so that's why we selected that. And you can check out the juniperfund.org and see what things we're doing, and you can actually see some of the pictures of the businesses that we support and the families who we're actually currently supporting. I think it's incredible the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for being uh, a guide, a mountain guide, in part also a guide for this conversation here. Thank yeah. you so much. And it's so good to see. It's been a little bit too long. I know. Not, not this long again. Let, no, okay. definitely not this long again. It's a great honor to be able to sit here and chat with you. Oh, you guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing you guys again probably tomorrow. <laughs> I won't be here tomorrow. <laughs> You're on your own. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye